0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Well, friends, it's Memorial Day weekend. We've also, we are in the middle of graduation season. And yeah, woo. Um, I know that because I live just down the way on 9th and Main. And so I get the privilege of seeing hundreds, multitudes of high school students and college graduates parading through the streets on the way to the convention center with uh, their caps and gowns on and their proud parents trailing behind them. Uh, Graduation season is a fun season of transition. It can also be a season where we ask ourselves, uh, what what now? How is this thing going to play out? You remember your high school graduation, don't you? Uh, there should be a picture coming up. Yeah. Um, so that's me at high school graduation on the left with my friend Kirian. Kirian Panakotu. We were best buddies in biology class. And I grew up in Akron, Ohio, so a suburb of Akron called Green, Ohio. And my high school, you would think our, colors, our school colors would have green in them. They didn't. They were orange and black. I was, I was so ready to get out of Green High School. I was ready to leave Akron, Ohio. I was, ben was ready to take on the world. And I was ambitious, I was an idealist, I thought by the time I hit the next big season of transition in my life, which would be my college graduation, that I'd have life pretty much figured out. Life would be simple then. So by the time I walked across the stage to receive my college diploma, you can imagine I was a little dismayed that, okay, life is not as simple as I thought it would be. Um, and that's a picture of me there. I still had a lot of hope for the future. Like, I still, I still was excited about what was to come. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, how is this thing going to play out? God, your, your plan, is this, is this your plan? The Bible has moments of transition, too. When we read Scripture, it has moments of transition. And when we read it, often we ask ourselves, how is this thing going to play out? God's plan doesn't really seem like enough. And that's our passage this morning. Our passage is one of those transition passages. But before we get to it, I want to talk about where we've, from where we've come in Genesis. So we've been going through Genesis. We're in the final, this is the final sermon of our first iteration of Genesis. So we're, we're starting, we're continuing on in Genesis, but it's a bit of a remix. We're, we're going into a new iteration of Genesis series next Sunday. So... Let's talk about where we've come. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we we begin with the creation of the world. God tells us the story of the creation of the world in the form of a poem. And it's beautiful. God intimately speaks the world into existence. And he's so concerned with the form and the function of everything that fits together on the earth. Next, he puts man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden. He makes them and puts them in the garden, and they live in God's presence every day. In Genesis 3, we encounter the fall. Sin enters the world. In Genesis 4, human number 3 murders human number 4. In this ultimate act of uncreation, sin is so aggressive. It's all-consuming. It's the desecration of the image of God. By the time we get to Genesis 6, humanity has become so evil that a holy and patient God must act dramatically. And so we get the flood. And God allows for an escape plan. He built, there's an ark, right? And a remnant of his created things are in the ark and as well as the righteous family, the family of the righteous man, Noah. And then once we get to Genesis 11, humanity has again turned its back on God. And Gabe preached on that last week, the Tower of Babel. There's this phrase at the center of it, let us make a name for ourselves. It's, prideful ambition and so we come to our passage today where through Genesis 3 through Genesis 11 we've seen humanity's rebellion against God over and over again and we come to a transition passage Genesis 12 1 through 3 it's a hinge passage for the rest of the biblical story it's a transition passage it's a linchpin because the after the events of Genesis 12 nothing will be the same God begins to work out his plan through Abram to bring the world and restore it back to himself, to bring humanity to a place of blessing before him. But if we didn't know the storyline, like if all we had was Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and we hadn't read the rest of the Bible yet, you probably would be asking yourself the same exact question that I was asking myself when I walked across the stage at my college graduation. How is this thing going to play out? God's plan doesn't seem like it's enough, and rarely does God's plan seem like it's enough. But what I want to do today is pull out five observations, five patterns from our scripture that are consistent with the way that God works out his plan in our lives and the entire arc of the biblical narrative. So five observations, five patterns, the way that God works out his plan. So let's read the passage again together, and then we'll jump into the first observation. So the first observation is that God's plan often seems small. God's plan often seems small. God called out one guy thousands of years ago to begin his great plan of redemption. One man. And Nancy Ortberg, a Christian author and speaker, she says this about this story about Abram. She says, if I was God's PR guy, I'd fire him. And that's because when God's plan seems small, it, and because of that, it seems unlikely to succeed. But there is so much irony in the small, that God chooses the small things, right? There's irony in that. It's almost as if God picks the most unlikely ways and the most unlikely of people to accomplish his purposes. And Paul picks up on this in the New Testament in his letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians. He says, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So if this really is a pattern throughout scripture, well let's look at the life of Jesus. Consider Jesus. God decides to come into the world as the form of a man, and so he's born to as a Jewish baby to an oppressed people group during one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire. Mary at the time of Jesus's birth was probably 12 to 14 years old. That was common in those days. He grew up in Nazareth as a carpenter. And there was a common colloquialism of the day that historians tell us, and that was nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. The small things, humble beginnings. Jesus was the climax of God's plan to restore the world back to himself. Small beginnings. And Jesus' teaching is even consistent with this. You might be thinking of the same thing that I'm thinking about, and it's the mustard seed. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move this mountain from here to there, Jesus says. How does this play out in our world today? If God really uses the small things? Well, when I was in college, my family lived in Shanghai, China. My dad is a businessman. Um, His company shipped him off to China for three years to work over there, and so my mom and my youngest sister followed him. And it was fun for me because I just got to go over there for vacations, and I spent a summer over there. I did a finance internship. I was an economics major, so I did a finance internship, and I was also a college soccer player. So I got to play some semi-pro soccer over there, which was really, really fun. And I was fascinated by China. It's a fascinating country, and it's still really impacted by something that happened back in the 1960s and 70s, known as the Cultural Revolution. And the Cultural Revolution was the brainchild of Mao Zedong, the communist communist dictator at the time. And he wanted to accomplish three things. He wanted to eradicate China of any capitalism. He wanted to purge it, purge China, of any traditional elements to its culture and society. And three, he wanted to get rid to end all religion, Christianity included. And to be honest, he did a pretty darn good job. Christianity really struggled. All religions really struggled. But then when China opened its doors again to the outside world, Christianity started small, began to grow. It was almost nonexistent. Now, almost a half a century later, China has 190 million Protestant Christians. God uses small For his purposes. Last sermon, I ended up saying 190 people, not 190 million. Come on, guys, 190 people. I'm glad I got it right this time. God uses small. How does this play out in our lives? Well, some of you in here, some of us in here, might be the only Christian at our workplaces. And we desire to share the gospel with our coworkers. God uses small conversations. Some of us in here, we might have walked in holding on to a Jesus by what feels like just a strand of faith, just a thread. God uses small. And I can't help but look at the small room that we're in right now, our little campus here in the middle of a big city, Kansas City. It's a great city. It's also a city that has a lot of problems. God uses small. Do we trust that God uses the small for his purposes? So God's plan often looks small, seems small. God's plan also seems slow. God's plan seems slow. And it's hard to overstate this point. Because at the time when God calls Abram, his plan is centuries away from realization, right? And we see, if we fast forward in this story just a little bit, we'll see that Abram doesn't see any of the fulfillment of his promises, but... For us, we're still in the midst of God's plan. We live on the other side of the cross and God's plan is not yet completed. We live in this precarious middle of the already and not yet. Look with me at Genesis 2 through 3. I'll read it for us. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are seven promises there to Abram. Seven promises, and I should have read them to you the first time that I went through, but I'm going to read through this again and point those out to you. And I will make of you a great nation, promise number one. And I will bless you, two. And I will make your name great, three, so that you will be a blessing, four. And I will bless those who bless you, five. And him who dishonors you I will curse, six. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven grand promises. If we fast forward this story just a little bit. When Abram dies, he has no land, no home, no wife, and one son. That is all the fulfillment of those promises that he sees. Are we prepared to endure with patience what feels like the slowness of God's plan? Are we okay with God's plan outliving us? In our culture run by the tyranny of the urgent? I mean, our attention spans are so much slower than they are faster than they ever have been, thanks to our smartphones. Work the workforce seems to be pushed for results at a faster and faster rate. It's almost exhausting. The slowness of God's plan can often feel frustrating. And I've seen in myself that I'm not a very patient person. I, I was, this was revealed to me last Friday as I was driving to Lake of the Ozarks to meet my wife's family. My wife was staying with her family in St. Louis, and then we met in the middle, and we went to Lake of the Ozarks to spend an afternoon on a boat. It was lovely. But on the way there, I got stuck behind a guy who was just driving 10 miles under the speed limit. And it was like, there was no way to pass him. It was a two-lane road. And so I was just stuck behind him for 30 minutes. And I was like, I was getting frustrated. And so I, I know you're not supposed to text and drive. I was texting Jacqueline, and I, I actually took a picture of his car, and you could see, like, his silhouette there, and you could see his dog sitting in the passenger seat next to him. And she sent me this text back. <laughs> Isn't that how God's plan feels like sometimes? Like, I have the capacity to go from point A to point B, at a much faster rate, but for some reason, God, you are taking me on this slow route. What is going on? Do we have the ability to endure with patience what feels like the slowness of God's plan? And are we okay with God's plan outliving us? Every morning, I get an email from the Henri Nouwen Society, and both Gabe and Tyler have spoken about Henri Nouwen up here, so you might be familiar with him. Uh, He was a theologian and professor, ended up leaving his position I think it was at Yale to go work with a mentally handicapped in Toronto and he's passed away now but his writings live on and so I get an email from the society that bears his name every morning and it's a little snippet of his writing and it's amazing how much it speaks to me where I'm at every morning that I get it and so I want to read to you one of those devotionals and it's only it's only seven sentences So it's not very long. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. So I just want you to listen to it. Let the words wash over you. If something pricks your heart, I'm happy to send you the devotional. He says this. We live in a generation that wants to see the results of our work. We want to be productive and see with our own eyes what our hands have made. But that is not the way of God's kingdom. Often our witness for God does not lead to tangible results. Jesus himself Died as a failure on a cross. There was no success there to be proud of. And still, the fruitfulness of Jesus' life is beyond any human measure. As faithful witnesses of Jesus, we have to trust that our lives too will be fruitful, even though we cannot see their fruit. The fruit of our lives may be visible only to those who live after us. What is important is how well we love. God will make our love fruitful whether we see that fruitfulness or not. I'll ask you one more time. Do we have the patience to endure what feels like the slowness of God's plan, and are we okay with God's plan outliving us? Like Abram, by faith, we must trust that God is going to make our lives fruitful. God's plan often seems small, it often feels slow, and God's plan often looks crazy. God's playing often looks crazy. That's the third point. And so we're going to read verse 1 now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is absolutely and unequivocally a call to step into the unknown. It's a call to adventure, really. Do you notice Abram's reply? It's in verse 4. He didn't. He sa- it says, so Abram went just as the Lord commanded him. What God was doing was he was stripping Abram of anything that he had dependence in or may, might have allegiance to and said, no, I want your entire dependence. I want your full allegiance. And Abram went. No questions asked, no verbal reply, no negotiations. He went. And faith throughout the Bible is has a number, it, it's a complicated concept, but in the Old Testament, often it is defined by just simple obedience. And the New Testament writers point back to Abram and say he was an exemplar of the faith. He was obedient. Now, I don't think our call looks exactly like Abram's call. I admit that it doesn't, because I, I don't think that it's from our seed or someone in here that God is going to bless the nations, right? There was a uniqueness to Abram's call. And I, I don't know, for many of us, God probably isn't calling us to move across the globe, to abandon our families, to forfeit our retirement plan, all of that. But the DNA of this call is still the same. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a theologian, was a theologian. He has something to say about passages like this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he has a whole chapter called Single-Minded Obedience. And what he says is that we're tempted to take Scripture passages like the one that we have this morning... And we're tempted to take them legalistically. And because we take them legalistically, we end up disqualifying ourselves from them. We put distance between that call and ours. But he says that this call is made up of this, like our call is made up of the same DNA. God's call is never for legalism. Rather, it's for obedience in faith. And obedience in faith for us, says Bonhoeffer, often means staying in our present occupations and our lives. God has already called us to those things, and it's learning to cultivate a dependence on God in those places, in our occupations, in our vocations, to learn to depend upon him there. God's plan is crazy, not because it looks exactly the same as Abram's, but because it's made up of the same DNA. God wants our entire allegiance. He wants our full obedience and dependence on him. And obedience to the call of God often looks crazy to people who are unfamiliar with the life of faith and i see this most represented this is something that is vividly seen in our society and that's through the christian traditional christian sex ethic in today's world someone who holds to the biblical view of sex is crazy in your dating dating with integrity makes you look crazy in our singleness that God might call someone to the vocation of singleness, looks crazy. Sam Albury, he's a Christian author and speaker. God has called him to a life of singleness, and he says this, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of it. And I love this quote, because in this description, it fleshes out that there's a unique dependence upon God that singleness requires. And the vocation of singleness is treasured in the eyes of God and it's something that is to be celebrated by the church because it has something to teach us about obedience and faith and dependence on Him. And marriage, too. Marriage looks crazy. Marriage looks crazy as as our faith defines it, that it is the symbol between Christ and the church. It's this practice of self-denial and self-sacrifice. It's between a man and a woman. This This looks crazy to our culture today. God calls us to obedience. God's call requires obedience and total dependence upon him. Because of this, it often seems crazy. All right, the next point. Next is God's plan is outward. God's plan is outward. Let's look at verse 2. This is one last time we're looking at the text. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's plan is always outwardly focused, it's never inwardly focused. Do you remember what was at the center of Gabe's sermon last Sunday? We, he preached on the Tower of Babel, and it was this phrase that people said to one another Let us make a name for ourselves. This act of prideful ambition. God comes right at that in verse 2. He says, Abram, I will make your name great, but only by way of my plan, so that you will be a blessing to others. God transforms the self-centeredness of Babel into a concern for the welfare of others. Let's look at verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that God says it's through Abram that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a common misconception that God's initial plans were only for the people of Israel. From the very beginning of God's plan, starting in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God intended to be a blessing to all people. I know I already... I already talked about Bonhoeffer but I'm going to go back to him. He's one of my he's one of my personal heroes. And Bonhoeffer has a theme throughout his works that remains consistent. And that's that Christ is always stronger in our brother's heart than in our own. And what he means by that is one is that the love of Christ can never be hoarded. God's love is never just for me. And two that faith is inherently communal that our faith is meant to be shared. And that it's through sharing our faith, through being built up in the life of faith with a community of believers in relationships of encouragement and love that we take that encouragement and love outside of those relationships and outside the walls of the church to be a blessing to others through faith. God's plan is always outward, to be a blessing to others through faith so let let 's talk about where we 've come god 's plan often seems small god 's plan often seems slow god 's plan often requires obedience in faith and it looks a little crazy god 's plan is always outwardly focused, and this is the last point. the fifth point, and this is the most exciting one god 's plan involves you. it 's predictable. This was implicit throughout the whole message, but It's an exciting one. God's plan involves you. In the last last point, I talked about how God's plan is always outwardly focused. We also see here that God's plan involves being sent. And if you look at Genesis 12, the first thing that God says to Abram is, go. Go. And the actual Hebrew of this is lech lecha. It's It's a verb. And it's, a, it's an imperative. It's get yourself out. That's the literal translation. Get yourself out. And scholars have noted that there's so much connective tissue between this command and the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always until the end of the age. Are we here because we know that we have been called and we have been sent? I know that, I know that God is, it's easy for me to grasp that God is writing my story. I know, God, you are writing my story. But sometimes I forget that God is writing a larger story that he's inviting me to participate in. It's his great plan of redemption to restore a broken world that is so desperately in need of him back to himself. And that a kingdom focus is that I I get to play a part in that plan. I have a part to play. We, as a community of believers, we have a part to play in that. God has decided, for whatever reason, to partner with us. We have been called and we have been sent. And God's plan, it often looks Small, it often seems slow. It requires a lot of obedience and through faith that looks crazy. It's always outwardly focused. It's never about us, but it doesn't exclude us. And it always involves us. We have a part to play in God's plan. What would it look like if we did that together as a community of believers? We are called and we are sent. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. It reveals to us, reminds us that we are called and we are sent to partner with you in the great work that you are doing, restoring a broken world back to yourself. Help us to embrace that call and the dependency on you that it requires the obedience and faith that is often challenging, the slowness, enduring the slowness of that plan, and trusting that even in the small things, you are working them out for the good of not only ourselves, but for the world. Father, we love you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.